In times of chaos and breakdown, where might we turn for guidance? To the myths, the storytellers, the wisdom keepers and the rabble-rousers. To the ones braving the seas of uncertainty, not with answers, but with poetry, beauty, and well-crafted questions. I'm Ian McKenzie, co-founder of the School of Mythopoetics, a place to gather with like-hearted folks to navigate the mysteries together. And this is The Crow's Nest, where I speak with an array of guests who are employing their mythic imagination to engage with the tempest of the times. You're invited to join me live on YouTube each week. Visit schoolofmythopoetics.com slash podcast to learn more. And now, enjoy our conversation. Greetings, friends. This is Ian McKenzie here to welcome you to another edition of The Crow's Nest, which is a weekly live show digging into topical themes and happenings from a mythopoetic lens. And this particular episode, I am delighted to welcome a guest in just a moment, uh, because we are on the eve of a no doubt magical weekend that's going to unfold uh, this Saturday, this Sunday uh, for Stalin. This is a special online gathering called Into the Dark. And uh, I'm delighted by the array of storytellers, musicians, and poets that have uh, said yes to, to gathering with us in this beautiful way. And this conversation is actually with one of our presenters, Langston Khan. And uh, this is actually the first time that we've spoken together one-on-one. And so I'm excited to uh, speak with Langston and for him to share what he's going to bring this weekend. But first, Langston Khan is a shamanic practitioner and teacher specializing in radical human transformation, ancestral healing, and the restoration of an authentic relationship with our wild hearts. He stands firmly at the crossroads. His practice informed by somatic modalities, contemporary shamanic traditions, initiations into traditions of the African diaspora, and his helping spirits and ancestors weaving it all together. He's the author of Deep Liberation, Shamanic Teachings for Reclaiming Wholeness in a Culture of Trauma, and I'm delighted to welcome Lyson Khan. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Mm. Well, I'd love to dig right in uh, with these crow's nest episodes. And so let's begin by first speaking of the word shamanic, which I know can carry a lot of uh, different connotations these days. Uh, and I'd love to hear your take because you, you, you know, claim that, uh, you use that with your body of work and your, what you're bringing. And I would love to just hear, what do you understand the roots or the, the deep, uh, practice of, um, to be shamanic is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I find myself less and less interested sometimes in even using that word and very much, much in, in flux with it in my own life because um, it carries so much complexity and baggage and real harm that's been done in relationship to it in terms of the ways that word has been appropriated. Um, when I use the word shamanism, I, the lineage of how I use that word is sort of, you know, the Romanian religious scholar, Merci Eliade, um, choosing to spend his academic capital that he had cultivated to argue on behalf of medicine peoples all over the world that academia and, and religious scholarship and, and just scholarship in general needed to look at these practitioners, not as um, hucksters at best or insane 
at worst, but actually holding a valuable lineage of humanity and a a certain very specific cultural role um, that was shared in many different cultures around the world for someone who is tending um, intimate relationship and health and balance and wholeness between the individual and their soul, the individual and their family, the family and their community, and the community and the invisible world or the environment that they're in. Um, Not seeing sort of like the environment as separate from the spirit world, really, just but as this big ecosystem and tending balance within that ecosystem between all the components of it, primarily through this tending rich, intimate relationship with the invisible world, going into altered states through different techniques. And in those altered states, creating changes at the deeper layer of things, the sort of true energies of things beneath the surface that then ripple out and create changes in, in everyday, you know, easily perceived physical reality. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. You spoke or you speak as well uh, about standing at the crossroads and I wonder what, what crossroads you might speak as. Or that's the crossroads calling now. Yes. <laughs> I'm going to try to ignore that now. Um, yeah, the, the crossroads. Well, so for me, you know, I, I guess to finish my thought around shamanism, I, where my use of that term in my tradition comes from is I practice a contemporary tradition of shamanism that's non-traditional, but that I do view as a deeply authentic in that it's focused on the issue of how do we as contemporary people coming from a broken path, from a culture who has failed to initiate us into adulthood, who has failed to tend things like birth and eldership and death. How do we as people, many of us on what you would call this broken path, actually choose to become whole anyway, to remember our wholeness that is innate to us anyway, without waiting for our culture to get there. And so that's the, that's the primary focus of my lineage and working with what you might call the sort of crazy logic teachers, the ones who are usually at the edges and the borders, death, trickster, enchantress, crazy woman, these like sort of very thonic entities that help us to find the shortcut that are not shortcuts in a very linear Western sense, but in the sense of the, the harder, riskier, more vulnerable thing that actually has the capacity to create greater change quicker. And so for me, when I think of the crossroads, I think of that place where you meet those teachers, those beings, those liminal entities that often get blamed for a lot of the problems of humanity, um, but really just happen to be there when those problems are occurring because they're trying to help and guide in these moments of chaos and these moments of flux and these moments where we need to navigate the dying of one story and the birth of a new one. Mm. You know, it makes me think of uh, the difference between, you know, an angel and a demon is the willingness to hear the message or not. <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the willingness to receive uh, the information, you know, and how, how one receives it. Is it welcome or unwelcome? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But I also hear, I hear this uh, thread also, uh, you don't use it directly in your bio, but I believe in your work of, uh, animism as well, right? Mm-hmm. This this uh, practice, this language of animism. And I would love for you also to uh, illuminate your understanding of what does that mean now to be reclaiming 
uh, or to be repracticing an animism in this cultural moment? Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. So for me, on one hand, you know, on a very simple level, animism is that understanding that there is spirit and intelligence in everything, that everything has its own agency, its own soulfulness, its own being, its own purpose, um, that nothing is disposable, that everything is part of the fabric of the intelligence we call life. And so if we accept that, if we accept that everything has this soulfulness and intelligence and wisdom to share and can be related to, and that we can be in relationship with everything and that we actually are in relationship with everything. We can't choose not to be in relationship with everything. All we can choose is if we're in a relationship of exploitation and extraction, or if we're in what you might call right relationship, this, this relationship that allows what I would call true love to flow, this flow of our gifts and of exchange and reciprocity. Um, if we accept that premise, then we also have to understand that humanity is like sort of the, the, the babies here, the young ones. And so the things like the trees, the mountains, like, like there's, I was just talking about this yesterday, the, the bedrock in New York city that is actually this ancient mountain range that defines the skyline of the city based on where people could build foundations and that mountain range is actually pre-Cambrian. Um, so it saw, you know, us crawling up out of the water. <laughs> so we have to understand that we're, so, we're such a blip in relationship to the perspective of these energies. So in that way, we benefit from centering the intelligence of these beings that we inhabit this planet with versus our own human intelligence. Because not that we're not important, but if we, when we center those older intelligences, all life thrives, including us. When we center only our intelligence, we see what happens over the last 300 years, which is a pretty quick um, creation of circumstances that aren't very conducive to any life on this planet. Mm-hmm. I love that that image too of this uh, this bedrock um, of this you know ancient story, really that's below the human story, which has in its, in its sway, a kind of amnesia, right? That the more that we sort of layer on top, kind of the social constructs of the human realm, the easier it is to forget, oh, wait a second, but you know, what was below that? What was below that? Um, I was recently talking to another, uh, sort of an esoteric Hawaiian, um, he's a, he's a fern botanical, uh, uh fellow, f- fascinating. And he spoke of right relationship as the practice of intimacy which I love that understanding because I hear you speaking that as well. To be intimate or to practice intimacy is a kind of, um, yeah, it's a, it's a capacity to be in relationship with, you know, the more than human. And uh, uh, the thing I'm so curious about too is there seems to be a kind of language, right? Like a, a kind of, um, I won't call it like, like a maybe not universal guidelines in a sense, but there is a kind of intuitive uh, way of understanding those practices and, and, you know, ways of being in a relationship. Um, that's my understanding from a sort of still deeply uh, beginner in this animist understanding. And I'd love for you to speak a bit about that, like this kind of like this developing this intuitive uh, practice, practical understanding of how to actually 
to speak to and to be in relationship with the more than human. So, so your question is, how, how do we cultivate that intimacy that we're talking about? Is that, is that the question or? Yeah, basically that alongside a sense of, you know, because if somebody just said, here's the, you know, handbook of, of how it works everywhere. Like for me, that doesn't feel quite true. Like I bet, I bet there's yeah. a kind of specificity, right? Yeah. So, but, but there is a, a almost like a ritual instinct or, a, or an animist instinct, I think that kind of carries over. I think to, you know, being able to speak to the more than human. And I just be curious to hear about that. Like, is there, again, not a, not a universal cookbook, but, a, but an instinctual or a practical kind of way of approaching how to be in relationship. Yeah. And I, th- yeah, I think you're right that there is, there, there are these, what I might call universal truths. And when I think about truth in relationship to, um, the more than human world and just an animus framework, everything's true. Like part of what defines initiation in my experience and understanding is that you learn that everything is subjective, that there's no absolute truth on one hand. All the stories can be true. On the other hand, some stories when lived on earth in physical reality do not work. Like we were saying, they don't serve life. Like the idea that we are isolated individuals um, that are essentially just a glorified mixture of chemical responses in the brain floating on a dead planet through the void um, doesn't really work. When you, when you actually try to live that story on earth, things fall apart pretty quickly. Whereas this story that we are all one while also being unique individual beings with purposes to live, that if they're not lived, the whole universe gets depreciated and no one and nothing is disposable and and is our task to learn how to live together in harmony here as we work to support each individual sovereignty and ability to express their unique medicine on earth. That works a lot better when you try to live that on earth than that other story. So I wouldn't say one is true and one is false, but how I define truth, I think now is what works on earth. You know, what actually is in service of life over the span of generations. And so in that question of like, what are some universal truths for how do we cultivate intimacy with the unseen world? A place that has really inspired my teachings and community a lot, the, the, um, the cycle of transformation um, and this, the cycle community um, we, we really have leaned heavily actually on the principles of the, uh, Quechua people of the, of the Andes, um, you know, in Peru and their principles of Aini, um, they're a sort of like very simple way to think about these principles. And I could spend like an hour or more, like a day just talking about this beautiful, these beautiful set of principles, but is one it's our responsibility to, to orient in our hearts, to choose to orient in our heart. Two, it's our responsibility to be actively engaged in learning from the living world. So um, actually paying attention to what works and what doesn't work on earth, which we get very good in modernity at creating a bubble between us and the world from. 
Um, so we don't have, we invest huge amounts of resources in avoiding any of that learning, um, which is essentially us stealing from the future so that we can stay stuck in the past and never actually in the present moment with the earth where we have the power to create change. And so then the third principle is action, you know, actually taking action, right action and doing your right work in the world on the level of like an individual, an organization or humanity, like what is humanity's right work. Um, and then also essentially paying attention to being in relationship with the unseen world, that if we acknowledge the unseen world exists, starting everything we do with going there first, understanding that that's like the basic foundation, foundational qualities of everything. Everything starts there in this unseen realm. So how do we co-create and plan with the unseen world before we start doing something? How do we check in with the spirit's land before we create a building? How do we, you know, go to our helping spirits and assess try to see current reality more clearly before we make a choice or a decision versus after when things are on fire and we're like, what's wrong? Help me spirit, you know? And then, uh, <laughs> yeah, we've all been there. Um, and then finally, uh, the, the last two principles, there's five principles are, um, you know, in, uh, giving and receiving, or sorry, that was the, the fourth principle is the one I just shared and then giving and receiving. So being in this flow of relationship where we're sharing our gifts and receiving gifts from others. And understanding at the core of Aini is that we come here in debt. We, we come here having been given an enormous amount of resources that it took to actually have a human body living on earth. So, and that's an immense privilege to be given that opportunity. So the only way we can pay back that debt is through sharing the unique medicine that only we can bring, that, that unique essence that we are in a way that is in service of life. Because we can choose to share that medicine that is our medicine, but is in ways that are not in service of life and do not hold the perspective of the goodness of the next generations. Thank you for that. Number of uh, yeah points that really stood out. And I think also, that sense of what works on earth, I mean, is, is the capacity, I think, to, to true to something beyond the subjective. Like, I think that's part of the challenge yet today too. I think, um, when we Ken Wilbur that used the phrase like a, a perspectival madness or something where it was basically, yeah, every subjective possibility was sort of equally valid. And I mean, I can understand from a place of just one's experience of life, right. And one's sense of um, yeah, one, one sense of perception, but then again, there, there's such a thing as works or not <laughs> and because the rest of life is also deeply, uh, of consequence. And I think that in that sense, there's this is where discernment comes in. And I feel often this is where the function of elderhood comes in with mm. the culture, right? Is that they're the ones that have trued themselves and been tempered by life in a, such a way that they're the ones that are constantly kind of, they don't forget, they don't forget it. Um, and when a culture loses that kind of memory, right, then it begins to swirl in this, you know, ever new, I think Robert Bly called it a sibling society. You know, everybody's kind of on the same level. Everything's fine. Everything's all subjective is fine. And so I hear that there is a, a necessity of reclaim, reclaiming essentially exactly that, a discernment of actually um, what works as a consequential being and what does life need from us, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, again, I think a question that you have to be 
willing to step outside of uh, this way of just, you know, it's all universal fine to get there. And so I appreciate that. Uh, I do want to touch on another aspect though of your uh, write-up where you speak about this idea of uh, joyfully endeavors to bring spirituality out of the dark, dusty recesses of esotericism and into our daily <laughs> existence, uh, where it can aid in us to realigning the ecstatic energy of our soul's purpose. And, you know, I, I, that caught my eye as well because of this, uh, you know, we're about to head into the dark, right? This uh, weekend with this event here with the School of Aesthetics. Uh, and I'd love to hear, yeah, how you sort of navigate or hold uh, and what excites you even about going into the dark with what you'll bring. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, when I talk about bringing things out of the dark, dusty recesses of esotericism, I think what that means for me is getting out of our minds with our animist practice. Like animism can be very poetic and beautiful and a great metaphor for life, you know, like, it, and I think that's a lot of how it was engaged in, in academia for a long time as this like beautiful metaphor, like, look at how these ancient humans thought about the world. What if we thought these things too? Versus looking at like, how does this change my daily life on a very physical level? How does it relate to my engagement with my digestive system, my microbiome? How does it relate to how I choose to post on social media? How does it relate or not choose? How does it relate to my understanding of class and, and race and um, sex and gender as I navigate my everyday life and, and really not getting, I mean, one way, one way very succinctly to think about it is I love the so what test of anything that's coming through spirit contact. Like I think we can get really as people who have in much of contemporary life been cut off so much from the unseen world when we start to engage, we can get really excited about every single thing that spirit communicates to us or a spirit communicates to us um, or that we experience in the land or that we have an experience during a medicine ceremony or, or an ecstatic dance, you know? And ultimately, I think all power in animism comes from relationship. But as we were discussing around the principles of Aini, all relationship is predicated on some level upon action. So it's not just about getting this information and having these wild experiences, but what do you do with that? How does it change how you show up on an everyday basis? Does it make you a more loving, kind, compassionate human being? Does it give you a greater capacity to take clear, decisive action in the moment when it's needed and respond to life versus being caught in a sea of triggers and reactions to your life that keep you from being able to actually consciously choose how you show up in each moment? And so to me, I'm very interested in how do we bring magic and an animus framework and shamanic practices into our everyday existence because the, the deeper I've gone into shamanism and animism, the more that I have um, separated that divide between the invisible and the everyday physical world. It become, you start to, it's not like, like I think at the beginning of our practice, we can often have these experiences like crazy house spirits that are suddenly causing problems or like, you know, unresolved ancestors that are cut, like and all these things that are real. 
but they're like things that constantly pull us off our center. Whereas the deeper we go in our practice, it starts to be this spiraling down where an answer you get from spirit should make sense in every single dimension of your life. It should make sense in that very everyday, just relational place. And it should make sense in that big poetic, mythic dimension. And they, there shouldn't be a divide between the two. And that's the, really like the, the magic to me of answers from spirit. They do resonate in all of those dimensions when they're accurately interpreted. Yeah, I love that. It makes me think that to, to turn towards uh, and to be discerning, and in this case with this weekend as well, into the dark, consciously turning towards the dark, uh, consciously turning towards also marking a procession of the seasonal wheel. I mean, depending on where one is, I mean, of course, you know, the South, uh, they'll, they'll be heading into the light, but, uh, 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 in the Northern climes, we're heading deeper into the dark and many cultures of course had traditions of, um, turning towards and what was required of both, you know, tending down the, the garden beds or the, you know, the harvestings and things like that, but also, um, gathering around honoring ancestors, um, lots of ways in which there was this turning towards as a way of nourishing, I feel, uh, so much more than just simply, you know, the, the seen realm of the human endeavor. And so I'd love to hear a little too around, you know, what does it mean to, to consciously turn towards, uh, with these practices towards this time of heading into the dark? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so I'm a very watery person. I spent a lot of time talking to rivers right now. One of my best friends is the Hudson River. Um, and I feel water is a great teacher about entering the dark. When I, when I think of a sort of um, one of my lineages, the Taoist lineage, and so when I think of the sort of five element Taoist cosmology, there's this understanding that in fall, there's, it's a lung time, it's a metal time, it's a time for inner twisting and discernment and solitude and stillness and silence and going within and evaluating your life and grieving. So you sort of empty out the lungs of all these unfelt or unexpressed emotions that have been gathering there and weighing you down. And that prepares you then to enter that darkness of the water, of the depths, of that surrender, of that dissolution that stretches us. And on the other side of that water potentially makes things new again. So when I think of this fall time and this like sort of Samhain approaching time, um, for me, that, that thing about like, you know, the veil between the worlds being thin has never really resonated much with me. Um, but what does resonate with me is that feeling that we can make the choice to allow ourselves to become thinner isn't quite the right word, but more fluid, more open, more like there's a way that when we're willing to enter into our grief and we're willing to express what has been unexpressed, we're willing to sort of take into account all we've experienced over the course of the year and put to death what we're ready to put to death and bring to completion what's ready to be brought to completion and harvested then there's a way we can open more fully to what has always been here wanting our attention. And it's not like it's some special, to me, it's not like it's a special time where suddenly um, everything's more present than it usually is. It's that, it's that 
the Earth's rhythms, the things dying, things falling away in the Northern Hemisphere, at least, um, invites us to be in this process of death and falling away that strips us bare and allows us to just rest into our humanity where that big conversation with the archetypal realms is wanting to happen through us. Because that's what I was saying. It's not so much about like going off somewhere, um, which actually is a great critique of that scholar. I was talking about Merch Eliade. He was a Christian scholar. She's really obsessed with the transcendent, with the shaman's flight off into ecstasy somewhere else to some other world. But what my experience has been, the more I engage indigenous elders, the more I deepen my practice, it's, it's more about a, arriving fully here, resting into your own soft animal body. And when we really are able to do that well, then everything comes alive around us. And we can be in that conversation without losing our center in a way that really stretches the capacity of our heart and helps us to dream new dreams for the coming year. So that's a lot of how I think about sort of preparing to enter the dark. Gorgeous. Yeah, I had uh, just a beautiful image of what does it mean to, to entrain to the rhythms of the earth and the seasons and how that actually allows a kind of, um, it's almost like a, I see it like a soul maintenance, right? Like a, a kind of maintenance of the soul born from the deep, uh, listening to and learning from the rhythms of the earth, uh, mm. that, you know, if a culture is like floating above in, you know, abstract the Anthropocene, then it's like, we're missing these these ways of actually learning from the earth and how she moves and how the beings move at the times. And so, yeah, what a beautiful invitation that, uh, to be intimate in this case as well, I think is to, yeah, to be curious, to learn, uh, to listen and, um, to be present. So yeah, yeah. May our time this weekend be, uh, uh a class and a practice in yeah. deep listening in the storytelling and the music and the poetry and yeah, very excited to um, to be with what she'll bring this weekend. Me too. I can't wait. And yeah, I look forward to talking more about those cycles and that entrance of the dark and sharing some practices that I have found really useful for that preparation to enter that space. Mm. Beautiful. Well, thanks to all who tuned in live as well. Here is the invitation for those who do wish to join us. Head to schoolmethodpoetics.com slash into the dark 2022. Uh, and you'll find uh, just the, the whole tapestry of yeah, storytellers, musicians, and poets from all over the world crafting two-day journey uh, with others around the world joining us. So I think it's going to be a beautiful time. And uh, I'm excited. Hope you can tell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So looking forward. Thank you. Mm. And thank you, everyone. Thanks for your time today. Likes it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Crow's Nest. Please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode with your friends. To learn more about the School of Mythopoetics and attend our upcoming events, visit schoolofmythopoetics.com.